just a little bit about myself. Uh, so I live in north central Pennsylvania, Potter County. I think we have less than 20,000 full-time residents in our county down there, so it's very rural. Uh, it was a nice drive up here this morning. Uh, I have never been up this far, uh, but it was good to be here. But, it, but anyways, uh, I actually work full-time for the Pennsylvania State Forestry Department, so you're getting a lay pastor <laughs> message today. But, but one thing to share with you is that uh, I, I am uh, taking online classes with Davis College and actually hope in the... In the uh, um, summer in May to be able to uh, have my associate's degree in Christian ministry. So I really feel the Lord is calling me into a position as a pastor somewhere. I don't know where that is yet, but uh, we'll see how that goes. But I'm gr- always glad to have the opportunity to share God's Word. And it was kind of last minute, <laughs> but I, I really li- I'm glad to be able to come and be with you this morning. Um, I don't want to keep looking back like this. Oh, good. But uh, anyways, I would like you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Um, I think there's water here, right? Yep. First Thessalonians, I'm curious, how many of you have ever studied through the book of 1 Thessalonians before? A couple. That's about how many in my church when I t- said that this is what we were going to be looking at. Uh, I never have. I mean, you certainly have studied parts of it or portions of it, but to actually go through the book. And so I would like to read to you the first chapter. So, starting in verse 1, it says, Paul and Silas and Timothy unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, our election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that ye were an example to all that believed in Macedonia Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. I pray that God will speak to us through his word. So I have a question for you. What does, the model, what does a model church look like? Uh, maybe you've never thought of that before. How would you answer that question? What, what characteristics come to mind? Uh, maybe it is a church uh, that has a number of programs for children, or one that has a nice facility. Uh, Maybe the model church is one that has a dynamic pastor and a large congregation. Uh, Maybe the church has a contemporary high-energy worship service that really gets the Spirit moving. Well, it should come as no surprise to you uh, that though these uh, characteristics may be uh, desirable, they are not the critical aspects of a model church. 
Today, we're going to look at this first chapter in the book of Thessalonians. And um, according to the Apostle Paul, that this is a, a church that we should follow their example. In verse 7, Paul states that this church was an example to the other churches in Macedonia and Achaia. This word example gives the idea of a pattern for others to follow. Are we working here? There we go. Example uh, is a pattern for others to follow. The other churches in the region were to reproduce the qualities of this church. This is quite a compliment. Uh, the question we must answer is, what are these qualities? Today we will identify several of them that describe this model church. And after doing this, I hope that you as a church can honestly evaluate yourselves and determine whether or not, in fact, you are a church to others to follow. So a little bit of history. I don't know if I'm not clicking this right. There we go. A little bit of history. Um, the city of Thessalonica was founded in 316 B.C. by the Greek general Cassander. Um, after the death of Alexander the Great, uh, as for your history buffs may know, his dominion was broken up and given to his four generals. And General Cassander had married the sister of Alexander, and her name was Thessalonica. And the city was named after her. This general got that portion um, uh, of 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 his kingdom that would be modern-day Greece, if you will. Um, the, the city became a major trade route. Um, I don't know, is it working there? I don't know if I'm not clicking in the right area or not. I don't want to keep looking back. I feel bad to keep looking back. You want to try it for me? I got it now? Great. All right. Thank you for that. Um, so anyways, this city became a major trade route, uh, a port city, if you will, and it was along a major highway called the Ignatian Way, and it was a major uh, travel way, if you will, for that region. Um, for any of you that have traveled the East Coast and know Interstate 95, the road that no one wants to drive on, <laughs> including me, uh, it was kind of like that. It was the major trade route. And in the first century, the time when... Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul would have been in this city. Uh, it was a major uh, Roman colony, and it had actually a population of around 200,000 people. Um, but like many of the Greek cities, uh, they were really entrenched in uh, idolatry and the worship of false gods. And so Paul really had a work to do when he came here. And it's, what else is interesting is that this city, even though it's been 2,300 years ago that it was found, it still exists today. It just has a little bit different name. So um, the book of Acts uh, actually is a great history book, if you know. Luke was a great historian. Uh, and uh, Paul, after he finished his first uh, missionary journey, he was anxious to get started on his second. Um, there were some changes to his ministry team, as you know. Uh, Barnabas left, and then Silas was added to accompany Paul. And as they passed through the regions of his hometown of Cilicia, uh, Timothy was added to the team. And these three men, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, were who made up the ministry team. And they're mentioned if, in the first verse of 1 Thessalonians that we read. Um, of course, as Paul was making plans to minister in other regions of modern-day Turkey, or Asia Minor, as it was then, he received what's called the Macedonian call and immediately departed for that region. Uh, he first came to Philippi, where he ministered uh, for some time. 
But after being arrested, beaten, and supernaturally released from prison, Paul and his companions came to Thessalonica. It's just a little bit south. Um, you, well, you may not be able to see, but on your left, the upper left in that map, that's the area of Macedonia where they ministered. Um, as he, he ministered there for really a short period of time. It says in, in Acts 17 that it was for three Sabbaths, or roughly a month. And it said that he reasoned from the Scriptures. And like usual, uh, as he went into the synagogues, the gospel was received with mixed, mixed results. Some Jews believed, but mostly it says that devout Greeks and chief women were receptive to the gospel. So these were Gentiles. Uh, the Jews who did not believe were very hostile towards Paul. And they stirred up trouble against the apostles and his companions. This was a common tactic of the Jewish leaders to incite riots and uprisings. Uh, the Romans didn't like when that happened. So if they could do that, they could usually get what they wanted. So that's what they would do. And they did this in Thessalonica. And it had actually got so bad that Paul and his companions were sent away from the city for their safety. Um, but not before they had the opportunity to share the gospel, and many believed. After leaving Thessalonica, uh, they all went to a, another city of, called Berea to the south, and uh, the Bereans received the word of God, uh, but the Jews in Thessalonica heard about this, and so they actually chased them. Not only were, did they want them out of their own city, but they also chased them all the way out of Berea as well. And so Paul then went to Athens and uh, Timothy and Silas stayed in Berea. And after some time, Timothy returned to Thessalonica to see how this new church was doing. And later he joined Paul in Corinth and gave the apostle an update of the church along with many questions that these new believers had. Um, and, and really I went through all that because it was Timothy's report that he brought to Paul and the questions that they had that led Paul to write this first letter to the Thessalonians that we are going to look at here this morning. Um, as we look at this, uh, we'd be on the next slide. Thank you. Um, we look at this first verse. We do see these three men, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and they all played an important role in the church being founded in, in Thessalonica. Each of these men were dear to the church there. Uh, this letter, like the majority of Paul's letters, was written to a church. And I really think that's an important point to make. If you think about the New Testament in the books that comprise it, they're actually letters. They're letters to churches. And it seems like today, and, and maybe it's always been this way, that we, and I'm speaking of the body of Christ, the church, are more interested in our individuality, really, than being a part of a church, being part of a body of Christ and the truth of the matter is, is that God works through the church. Yes, he uses individuals. Yes, he does, but he uses them in the context of a local church, like this one, to do mighty and great things beyond what we could do as individuals. So this was written to a church. And so that's a characteristic of a model church, that it knows how to function as a church body, a unified church body. You know, that word church means called out ones, and certainly... Uh, this culture that the Thessalonians were in was, like I said, you know, it was full of idolatry and sin. Um, and these individuals who were saved and called out of that culture stood out. They were different. And, you know, that's the way we are to be today. We are to stand out and be different from our culture. And um, that was what was happening then, and that's what needs to happen now. 
Paul was excited to get the good report from Timothy. And this caused him to give thanks to God. He also prayed for the church. You know, Paul's prayer list must have been very long. Uh, You know, it talks about how much he prayed for his churches. And I can only imagine his tattered uh, prayer journal, if you will. Um, I'm sure that he spent a lot of time in prayer. And and my pastor in Galton (laughs) uh, had a quote. We've been studying the book of John. um, And we were in John 17. And if you know what that chapter is about, it's Jesus doing what? What was Jesus doing in John 17? He was praying, wasn't he? And my pastor shared this, and it should be a quote up here on the PowerPoint. It says, he said, prayer is the dynamic that makes ministry effective. Prayer is the dynamic that makes ministry effective. You know, we can do all this stuff for the Lord. We can uh, try to be busy about things and, and try to serve him in every way we can. But if we're not backing that up with prayer, if we're not consistently praying that God would be effective in, in our ministries, then it's going to be for naught. And Paul understood this. And, you know, it's often we don't think that prayer is, is you know, something that is effective. But yet it is when we truly pray from the heart. And, and Paul understood this. You know, Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17. Paul prayed for the churches he ministered to. And so should we if we want to be effective in ministry. So Paul was thankful for the report. And what made him thankful? That's what we, we see some of this in verse 3. Uh, you know, uh, we see Paul. Uh, and he, he, he remembered the church there. He, he was remembering. I, I just see him when he was going about his day. And remember, he's in Corinth. Corinth was a challenging place to minister. If you have read the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, you know it was a challenging place to minister in. And I could see him as he was going about his day. Maybe he was struggling. Maybe it was a challenge to him, and yet he remembered something about this church in Thessalonica, and it encouraged him. And he did this without ceasing. This was something that was happening, that it was reoccurring. He was remembering them. And there was three things he remembered that he brings out in verse 3. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and patience of hope. Uh, The first one there, work of faith, you know, it almost seems like a contradiction of terms, doesn't it? Um, Faith and works. However, genuine faith is always associated with some type of action. Um, We see this repeated over and over again in the examples we see in the scriptures. If you are, I'm sure, familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, it's the hall of faith, if you will. You look at those examples, every instance of faith given there was backed up by some type of action. Noah built an ark. Um, Abraham went out, you know, and look at that list. There's always action associated with it. Um, This does not mean that we are saved by our works, but yet the verification of one's faith is the works that it leads to. James says in uh, James uh, 2.20, faith without works is dead. So he was referring to a work of faith. What was he referring to? Well, in verse 9, he says that they... uh, Turn from idols to serve the living God. Um, and the genuineness of their conversion was seen in the fact that they turned from their old life. That we use a, a word called repentance for that. There was repentance. They were going this direction, and they turned from that, and they went this direction. They were going away from the Lord, and then they walked to, towards Him. There was repentance. They turned from their old life, and they were walking in a new life. The second thing that Paul remembered was their labor of love. Um, Most would not think of these two words together either, right? 
However, and, and many of you probably know this, it takes sacrifice and hard work to truly love others, to truly love them, not selfishly love them, which humans are prone to doing, but to truly love. Uh, that word labor, it means to work to the point of weariness. Uh, the Thessalonians not only turned from their old life, but they also served the living God. Um, and for any church to be effective, it must labor in ministry and being motivated by love. And, you know, there's been countless messages on love. We could spend the rest of our time talking about that. But true love, according to the Bible, is self-sacrificing love. It's willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. And it's a choice. And it's a choice to love that which is unlovely. Um, and we see that, of course, best shown in our Savior, Jesus Christ. The last thing that Paul remembered was patience of hope. Hope, when used in the Scriptures, refers to confident and favorable expectation. And we, I know myself, we often use this word improperly. Uh, we'll say all kinds of things that we hope for. I heard that you're having a Super Bowl party. There's probably people that hope that one or the other team wins. Um, I honestly don't care. But uh, uh, one of the two could when I gave this message last, the Steelers were playing. So there's a lot of Steeler fans down where I live, so their hopes have been dashed. But uh, and I'm guessing up in this area, there's probably Bills fans, and your hopes have been dashed for a long time. So um, I could say that I have a... So anyways, so anyways. But anyways, I'm sure there is somebody hoping for a certain team to win, but that is not hope. That's a desire. That's something that we, we want uh, for our own satisfaction. It's not hope. Um, hope, when used in the Scriptures, is almost always associated with the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, Titus 2.13 refers to that blessed hope. 1 John 3.3, 3, after referring to the appearing of Jesus Christ, says this, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Hope is in the return of Christ, and hope should also have a sanctifying quality in our lives. Our hope in Christ's return should spur us on to be ministers and to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, the theme of the rapture of the church is a common one in 1 Thessalonians. If you've studied 1 Thessalonians, I almost guarantee that's what you've looked at in this book, this short letter. Um, but it's a common theme. Actually, every chapter ends in a reference to this truth. Um, you know, and, and this whole idea of patience of hope is such a challenge for us, I think, as uh, Christians living in the United States. Um, and, and I think about this all the time because I'm convicted of this. You know, we are called to live expectantly, right? Awaiting the return of our Savior, to live our lives so we're ready. But we get so caught up in the things of this world. And the, the reasons why are very simple. I think we have it too good. We have it so good here. We don't know what it means to lack anything. That was not the case for this church, by the way. And that we read about here. Um, and we're very comfortable here in this world. We're very comfortable. And you know, we're, we're impatient. You know, this talks about a patience of hope, but we're impatient. We want things now. We want them now. We don't want to wait. We want them now. But that is not how we are to live our lives. And that's not how this church. So a model church should be marked by these three things we just looked at. Verifying their faith through their action to minister laboring in that ministry, and then patiently and expectantly waiting for the return of the Lord, uh, it, what we call the rapture. Paul continues his thoughts as uh, we move into verse 4. 
And it's interesting here, he talks about that he knows that these individuals were chosen of God. Um, He knew this. Um, It wasn't something that uh, after he saw their response to the gospel, he knew that God had chosen them. Um, That word election, you know, that when we see that, um, theologians want to debate and some people want to run away when we see that word election. But the Bible certainly does teach that God is in his sovereignty, predetermines those who will be saved. And the reality is if God didn't do that, um, no one would be saved because we are lost in sin. And if God didn't do that, he wouldn't be God. So he truly does predetermine those who will be saved. However, I do not think Paul's point in bringing this up in this particular instance is so we can debate the doctrine of God's election versus man's free will. Rather, Paul was simply stating that the Thessalonians' response to the gospel verified that they had been chosen by God. You know, election applies to more than just salvation. It also applies to the reason that God chooses. You know, Paul knew this. Back in Acts, when Paul was miraculously saved on that road to Damascus, um, you know, and he went to Damascus, and a, and a man named Ananias was supposed to go to him. He really didn't want to, but he was told by God to do this. This is what God said to Ananias. He says, But the Lord said unto him, Ananias, Go thy way, for he, referring to Saul, is a chosen vessel unto me. Same word as election, chosen vessel, uh, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God chose Paul for a reason and purpose. He chose the Thessalonican church for a specific reason and purpose, and he has chosen this church for a specific reason and purpose as well. So as we continue to move through this, um, Paul makes somewhat of a transition in the letter and shifts his focus to the work of the gospel among this church in verse 5. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were faithful to share the gospel with the Thessalonians and then when they visited the city. And this verse is an amazing verse. Um, However, Paul, he understood that the gospel was more than just words. Um, It came in three things. Paul uses threes all the time in this letter, by the way. You'll see it over and over again. To add emphasis, he uses threes. Um, Notice how it came. In power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. As stated here and throughout the scriptures, the gospel is powerful. Um, And as you may know, that word is dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite from. And it means supernatural, uncontainable power. So how powerful is it? You know, It can give life to a spiritually dead soul. That's how powerful the gospel is. Um, For all of Paul's oratory abilities, he understood that the words he shared were meaningless unless the Holy Spirit was at work. You know, for one who shares the gospel faithfully, it's, it, it's a challenge for us at times, but someone who is willing to share the good news, um, the Holy Spirit then takes over and, and, and works. And I think as is shown up here, it unleashes the power of God. I like that when I was preparing this message. The power of God is unleashed through the Holy Spirit, and nothing can contain it. Um, And because Paul relied on the Holy Spirit and preached the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ, it brought much assurance. Paul expected miraculous things to happen when he went there. Um, He was assured that the gospel would do powerful things. It would bring conviction. People would be saved. He didn't expect the people to blow off what he said. 
but rather he knew that the Holy Spirit would bring spiritual life to those the Lord had chosen. And so my challenge to you is, do we expect God to do miraculous things? Do we expect that? You know, and, and I'm, I'm there with you. I struggle uh, at times to share my faith. And it was brought up, you're having this party tonight. It's sometimes the hardest with the people that are closest to us to share that good news. And, and you know, that, that shows me an, a, a misunderstanding of how powerful the gospel is. This is the power of God unleashed that can bring spiritual life to a dead soul. So if we expect God to do miraculous things, then we need to share the gospel, and he will work through that. So given the fact regarding the gospel and its work in this church, what was the impact? And we see that as we continue on in this chapter. They became followers of of Paul and of the Lord, it says. And this word followers, and maybe you have a different translation, it really is where we get our word mimic from. They became imitators of him. They were imitating him. Um, and, and, And actually, Paul uses that word a lot in his letters, if you look for it. He calls people, the churches he's writing, to follow his example. Um, I know I'm hesitant to do that at times, but he said to follow him. Paul and his companions were qualified to imitate because they genuinely followed the Lord Jesus. Um, So they were worthy of being followed. Um, And another thing is that this church received the word of God. Um, That word receive means to receive by deliberate and ready reception of what is offered. And you know what? This is a supernatural act also. Um, really what we're looking at here is, is God working supernaturally through, his go- through the power of the gospel, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through going ahead and preparing a place to hear the gospel. And then when it's done in faith, it's received. And that's a supernatural thing. And that, they did that in uh, this church. But notice that they did it in much affliction. You know, we have already seen that there was much hostility from, from the other people in this city that they didn't want to hear it. And, and no doubt when um, Paul left and this church was, was growing and starting, there was people who persecuted them. It wasn't easy for them. They faced hardships. And you know, how a church responds to affliction says a great deal about it. Um, you know, afflictions can seemingly do one of two things to a church. It can either tear it apart or it can draw it closer together. I heard a man say, he was, talk, he was a motivational speaker, and he was talking about uh, five C's of a, of a winning team or something like that. And one of those things was chemistry. And one interesting thing he shared was that, you know, chemistry, I'm sure you all love chemistry, and you could give me the scientific definition of the science, but he said that it really it's a, it's, a, it's a science about bonds, how bonds are formed, Right. Some of you are remembering back to chemistry. But anyways, um, it's how bonds are formed. But one thing he said is that these bonds are formed with heat and pressure. Bonds are formed with heat and pressure. And you know, that's what adversity does. It brings heat and pressure and it forms those bonds. So for a church to respond in the right way to affliction and hardship, it's going to draw them closer together and make them even stronger. That's what chemistry is. So how do you handle adversity? You know, that's a, that's a big question. I know that we all face adversity in different ways. How do you handle it? Um, you know, it, it, God wants to use that in your life to draw you closer to him and to each other. That's what he wants to do. And so 
handling adversity correctly requires the right focus, and this church had that. It says that they did it with joy of the Holy Spirit. The church was able to have joy regardless of the circumstances that they faced. Another supernatural act. Isn't it amazing when we're walking in right relationship with the Lord, there's all these supernatural things happening through the power of His Holy Spirit. We don't even maybe realize them. But that's what He wants to do. Um, so the Thessalonican church thought to, sought to imitate the Lord Jesus and those faithful leaders who had taught them by, uh, by receiving their teaching. They did this with joy, even through though they suffered for their faith. So this church was persevering, even in the midst of hardships, and their testimony did not go unnoticed. And really the rest of the letter focuses on that. You know, this church was an example, as we already said, to the other churches in the region. Other churches needed to look at this church and pattern themselves after them. Paul wrote this letter from Corinth. And like I said, I know that he was thinking about the church there. If only he, I, could, I could hear him speaking to himself. If only this church in Corinth could be like that church in Thessalonica. You know? If only they could be that way. And I think that they eventually did. It just took some time. And as thunder, clap, or a blasting trumpet, the word of God was being shared by the Thessalonians. Get this in every place. <laughs> every place. Not just... Every place that this, these people went, it was being shared. So not only did they receive the word, but they were sharing it with others. They were following Paul's example. He was faithful to come to them and share. Now they were faithful to share. And I don't think this was some evangelistic campaign, but I think rather those saved individuals that made up this church uh, were sharing the gospel with those they knew. You know, with those they knew. This is the pattern we see in the Bible. We are responsible to share our faith within our sphere of influence, if you want a, a, a term, a phrase, our sphere of influence. When we are faithful to do this, supernatural things happen. And if we want to build a church, if you want to build your church here, each of, uh, each of you needs to be doing this, need to be sharing the good news. Um, it's funny, we tend to share good news of all kinds of things, but... Why is it that we never get around to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? I have to, sh my time is running short, but so I live in a rural part of Pennsylvania. And I, driving up here, it's pretty rural too. Um, I've been wanting to get rid of my landline phone for a long time. Who has a landline phone still? Well, pretty good, see? So yeah, you know, so does probably the high percentage of where I live. Well, there's this new thing, it's like a home wireless phone. And you can still use your home phone, keep your same number. You know, when I heard about that and I looked into it, I shared that with like 15, 20 people. I did. I shared it with, you know, all these people. But yet those 15 or 20 people, did I share the good news of Jesus Christ with? I, I shared the good news about our telephone, but not about our Savior, the way that they can be redeemed and live a life of meaning and purpose. Um, so I was convicted. But we need to be doing that. This church was zealous, and Paul didn't feel he needed to seriously focus uh, really preaching in that area anymore. He knew that the, this church was doing the work. They were chosen by God, and they were going out and spreading the good news, and he didn't need to do it. That's what we need to be doing. Um, so this church was a missionary's dream, and, and it gets even better. You know, Paul seemingly was running into people that testified about this church all the time. He spent a great deal of time in Corinth. And I imagine, I am speculating, but I'm imagining that he kept meeting individuals who had been impacted by them. Um, what an encouragement this must have been to him. Um, they turned from idols. 
They repented. They, they were walking with God, and they were sharing their faith. And, and when we, as we finish up here, the last thing that seemed to motivate this church in verse 10, you know, we already talked about that they were patiently and confidently waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, more specifically the rapture of the church. Paul reveals that truth in this uh, letter. And notice, though, they weren't sitting around locked in their bunkers awaiting for that to happen, but rather were zealously telling others about Jesus. The living and true God raised His Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And so He promises a resurrection for His adopted sons and daughters as well. And this truth spurred them on to share their faith. And it says there that He saved them from the wrath to come. You know, this is an event that is yet to come. And those who place their faith in Christ will be delivered from it. In, in, in our time now, in this age of grace, we tend to lose sight of the fact that God will one day pour out His wrath on this earth and all who oppose Him. Romans 2, 5, and 6, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. The day of wrath is referring to a time yet to come known as the tribulation period in which God will no longer forbear but unleash his wrath upon the world. The book of Revelation talks a lot about this period of time. And here's just one verse from there. And he said to, and these are people who are going through this, and, and this is what they said. They said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who shall be able to stand? Um, and it is a great uh, comfort, is it not, to know that for us as believers in Jesus Christ that we will be delivered from this event. Um, this book goes on to say this letter, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. These statements were meant to be a comfort and a hope to those suffering Thessal Thessalonians who were suffering for their faith, but yet doing the work that God had called them to do. So, the last slide up there, I hope, if you hit it one more time, is going to list for you um, these characteristics that we have identified today. Uh, maybe they weren't the ones you were thinking of. <laughs> they really weren't with me. Um, so my challenge to each of you and to your church is that you honestly assess where you are at. You know, um, it's always good for us to do that from time to time. Uh, repent if necessary and move towards making these characteristics a reality in your church if need be. Now more than ever, there is a need for local churches just like this one to function biblically, to function as an example for others to follow. So not only does our society around us need to, to see that and to, to be ministered to, but you know other churches need to function to help each other as well. We need to be examples to each other. And I am so grateful to God for His Word and that it instructs us in this area. Let's pray here. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, um, as we look at what it is to be a model church, Lord, we are uh, challenged. Um, certainly, uh, some of these uh, things that we looked at today may not be a reality in our lives and in the lives of our church, but Father, we pray that you would forgive us and that we would seek to make them, Lord, that we truly would be unified in our churches, that we would uh, together as a, a body go forth to reach a lost and dying world. 
Father, that we would uh, be willing to sacrifice, uh, to endure hardships for you. And um, Lord, that um, we would uh, have faith in the power of the gospel. Lord, that we wouldn't get caught up in um, our limitations. Lord, that we would understand that for one who is walking rightly with you and who is uh, relying upon your power, that uh, it, there is no stopping it, Father. And uh, just pray that you would use your word to uh, bring change where needed and to encourage where needed as, as well. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.